0: This is Dan Watson, Uncancelled. Let's go. A defiant Boris Johnson today urged his party to, quote, draw a line under questions about his leadership after fending off Tory rebels in a crunch no-confidence vote last night. Thank you, by the way, everybody, for all your good work yesterday,
1: because uh, which was a very important day, because uh, we're able now to draw a line under the issues that, our opponents want to talk about and we are able to
0: get on with talking about what I think the people in this country want us to talk about. So as you remember, the PM won yesterday's ballot by 211 votes to 148, but the scale of the rebellion against him means the knives are still well and truly out. But is there a way Boris can save his premiership? Well, acclaimed political analyst, Professor Matt Goodwin, joins me now with a three-point plan. He's an expert in red-wall politics who has written books on Brexit, populism and public opinion. Matt, great to have you here. So what's the first thing the PM needs to do to bring himself back from the brink?
1: Well, I've spent the last couple of days talking to Red Wall MPs who have made a really important point, Dan, which is, They want to go out and defend the prime minister. They want to go out and defend the government, but they feel like they haven't got the conservative policies that they need in order to be able to do that. And I think, in essence, what he's got to do is come out and just declare all-out war on the cost-of-living crisis. He's got to get back to what he was promising people in that 2019 manifesto, which was a low-tax conservative government that was going to uh, reduce the size of the state, was going to uh, unleash uh, the productivity and entrepreneurial uh, spirit of the United Kingdom. And I think they've really lost sight of that original um, mission, Dan. It's not hard to see why. We had COVID. We had the pandemic. we had Now we've got Ukraine. But he's got to lower the tax burden, the biggest tax burden since the 1950s. He's got to start looking at things like environmental levies. He's got to look at corporation tax and VAT. He's got to start actually, I think, looking at the institutions that are getting all of this spending and say, are we spending this money in the right way? Or do we need to actually now think about reforming some of these big institutions, the NHS being one of them, to make sure that when we do spend money, we spend it in a much more efficient, clever way. And there's just none of that so far, Dan. I think that's my frustration here. You know, I've talked to people around the PM really uh, since January, and I've been saying, you know, you guys have got to get back to your original core message here. And if you don't, uh, you know, this whole thing's going to come crashing down.
0: Why do you think he's been so reluctant to do that, Matt? Is it uh, the forces around him? I mean, some people say he's very influenced, for example, by his his wife.
1: I think uh, there's always been a question mark over whether Boris Johnson gets the realignment of politics that you've talked about so much on this show and GB News have talked so much about, has he been, you know, too economically and socially liberal in his instincts? Does he really get the people who are voting for him and what they want? I think that's a real question. I don't know necessarily where that that influence is is coming from, but he struggled to kind of connect with Workington man. He struggled to, to, to connect with the Bolsovers and Mansfields and all of those seats. So to be honest, Dan, if if they lose those seats, it's game over, right? I mean, the Conservatives are going to lose a big chunk of the South at the next election, really, no matter what they do. There's going to be a lot of southern losses in and around London and and the southern uh, commuter belt. So their only way forward here, the only strategy here is to expand the areas that they've started to eat into in 2019. They've got to expand the Midlands, the North, and all those kinds of areas. And that means... Being culturally conservative, leaning you know pretty strongly uh, to the right on culture and identity, and being economically conservative. What did Lord Frost come out with today? He said, you know, the problem with the government is it isn't economically conservative. Esther McVeigh said the problem with the government is during the pandemic it became a socialist government, expanded the state, you know, became sort of a sort of big supporter of that. Now I, don't, I wouldn't go as far as Esther McVeigh, but I would say that actually I think Lord Frost has got a point. You know, the economic conservatism here has got lost in the last two years, and the party's got to get back to that in order to uh, hold this unique electoral coalition together.
0: Yeah, well, it was quite uh, similar to what you're saying, what what Lord Frost said. He said, bring down taxes straight away to tackle the cost of living crisis, take on public service reform and establish an affordable and reliable energy policy for the long term. Uh, Three quite simple things, but of course, things that go completely against the agenda, which has sadly been spend, 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 tax, 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 at least from the Chancellor. So do you think, Matt, there needs to be an actual reset moment, an acknowledgement from Boris Johnson publicly that we've veered off course and we're going to do a bit of a 180?
1: Well, in a sense, we had that in January, right? This is the second reset. The big reset in January at the beginning of the year was get number 10 working. So get rid of a lot of people that weren't really bringing out the best in the prime minister and put in some people who understand the PM, what he's about, and try and stabilize that number 10 operation. So that was reset one in, in January. Now, that was supposed to really have been followed with you know, big, robust, appealing um, policies that would reconnect with the voters that the party's been losing quite dramatically in the polling over the last year. And those policies, you know, with the exception of uh, illegal migration, um, those policies have been you know, few and far between. So this second reset, what we're living through now is really about policy and ideology. But Dan, you know, he hasn't got three months to kind of, you know, reflect on what he's going to do. He's got like three days, you know, this is urgent in that they're going into two by-elections that are going to be Pretty brutal. We can all sense that these are not going to be good by election results for the Conservative Party. And he's going into then an even more difficult summer as his critics will pile pressure on the 22 committee to try and change the rules in the summer. So that means he's going now to have to come up with something very quickly, as in yesterday. Uh, and so far, you know, I think this is why Lord Frost hit the airways, why Esther McVeigh is hitting the airways, why others are, are joining this conversation. It's because so far, you know, it, there's something that isn't quite clicking in his head. He doesn't, I don't think he doesn't, he, he doesn't necessarily grasp, you know, the urgency of the situation and then the need to sort of come out with something compelling and bold.
0: Well, I hope he's listening to you all uh, because just finally, Matt, obviously yesterday, he lost to Hannah Davidson, uh, one of the Red Wall MPs, who you could argue almost definitely wouldn't have her seat if it weren't for Boris Johnson, how significant was that defection?
1: So I think that alongside the looming Wakefield by-election, these are significant things in that they're gradually undermining Johnson's claim to be the only person who can hold that unique piece of territory that stretches across from North Wales to the East Coast. And you know it's remarkable down that we're even are having this conversation it was only last year they were winning Hartlepool for the first time since Cliff Richard was in you know um, singing about you know, living doll in the 1950s I mean it's remarkable that we're, we're having this conversation already and to be frank the local elections in large parts of northern England actually were were not that bad um, but already the narrative is beginning to creep in and it's going to be inflamed by Wakefield so he's going to have to I personally think get out of London get out of Sw1 start Spending a lot more time in the Northeast, Yorkshire, the Midlands, changed the symbolism of his premiership. And, you know, the one thing about Johnson you can say is he's a good campaigner and he's good when he's up against the ropes. Uh, and somehow he finds that narrow path through when everybody thinks he's not going to find it. He needs to now double down on that immediately you know he needs to double down on that uh, that sort of instinctive strength that instinctive skill uh, that he has he is a good campaigner i mean we we know that he's a good campaigner he's won london twice you know he's won the biggest majority since 87 so i think he he kind of needs to rediscover that um and and come out the gate with something new to say around taxation around energy and give these mps i keep talking to give them some ammunition yeah give them some ammunition to go out into the trenches and say we're going to defend this government because as you say they want to support
0: him and ben houch and uh the tees valley mayor who was here yesterday saying that when he's campaigning with boris boris is still swamped even in the last couple of weeks still people mobbing him wanting his selfie so there's certainly still that political or personal pull but you're right he's got to get the policies right so Fascinating analysis as ever. I hope Boris was listening. That was political analyst, academic and author Matt Goodwin. Charlie Lawson is tonight's Outsider. And as England religiously took the knee against uh, uh, again in blind support of Black Lives Matter in tonight's Nations League game against Germany, thus standing by the gesture despite the backlash they received against Hungary over the weekend, the squad were fiercely booed by the 30,000 teenagers and kids ushered in for Saturday's closed-door game who appeared clued up on BLM's anti-capitalist pro-Marxist leanings. So England lost the game 1 0, but the bigger talking point was Southgate's tone deaf reaction to that booing. Instead of trying to understand why people are against shallow political gestures for an increasingly suspect organisation, the England manager instead claimed his morally superior virtue signalling men were trying to quote educate people and save them from what he called inherited thinking. Look. Very surprised. Um, but um, I think that. Um, that's why we do it. You know, we do it to try to educate. Um, and
1: uh, you know, uh, I think why you know young people are, must can only be influenced by um, uh, older people. I thought there were sort of pantomime boos when our team came out to warm up. That was different with the taking of the knee, but that felt like inherited
0: thinking to me footy fan, ex-Corey actor and voice of the people, Charlie Lawson is here now. So, Charlie, are people who criticise BLM, like me, uh, are we just too stupid to understand what this is all about, as Gareth Southgate seemed to suggest there?
2: I think I'd suggest to Gareth that perhaps he should just concentrate on managing the football team and and shut up about the rest of this stuff because he's just making a plonker of himself. Um, Everybody knows now at this stage that um, whilst many, well, three years ago, whatever, um, we all listened and we all looked and we thought, right, let's we all know Black Lives Matter. So let's just pay attention to this. But very, very quickly, it became obvious that this organization um, bore no resemblance, really, to what it stood for, like Black Lives Matter, uh, and uh, that that was a long time ago. And, and Gareth really now uh, um, should shut up, bless him and concentrate on trying to um, qualify and trying to progress and trying to make his side play perform better. You know, they should be. Yeah. Um, well, I, especially, I, I, Charlie, but,
0: especially, can I just say, given that the World Cup, is being hosted in Qatar. So, I'm sorry, yeah. are they going to be taking a knee in Qatar where it's illegal to be gay, uh, where female rape victims can be put in jail? I, I mean, it's it's laughable. It's,
2: if if it's, they actually it, yeah. cared
0: about social issues, they wouldn't be going to Qatar.
2: It, it appears to me that there must be some people in the squad who probably entirely agree with you, um, Dan, but um, are, are not prepared to speak up because it, it, they really are going to make, um, f- excuse my French, but they're going to make themselves look like absolute dickheads if they go to Qatar and start taking a knee and all the rest. I
3: know. Look,
2: it's virtue signaling beyond belief and it's just getting silly and it's making a fool of everybody, including, um, you know, English fans. And we all know some English fans behaved badly when those penalties were missed and that was disgraceful. And I believe the 11 arrests and what have you. And apart from anything else, I would suspect that Marcus Rashford would be the first to stick his paw up and say, I want to take a penalty. Don't worry about me, boss. But that was another thing that he was saying today. Yeah, because he, that, he, know, he
0: basically suggested he that they he would be think intimidated. Twice. Yeah, he would yeah, think oh, yeah, twice like about choosing yeah. a black player because of the reaction. Well, I would say that's racism. You know, you can't make decisions uh, based on the fact that someone might experience racism because of a few lunatics. But one thing, Charlie, that I feel very strongly about is... The people who boo the taking of the knee are not racist because they are booing the Black Lives Matter organisation. If you look into the Black Lives Matter organisation, Charlie, I mean, they want to defund the police. They want to uh, dismantle the family unit. We know their organisation in the US has taken millions and millions of dollars, which they seem to be spending on big mansions. I mean, that's what people are booing.
2: Yeah, and I mean Twiga Mala, the rugby player. Um, excuse me if I've got the pronunciation wrong, but uh, he was—he uh, he, was—he's a fun—he's a, a Christian man, and uh, of color, if you like. And he refused to take the knee, and I believe he got into a bit of trouble. Uh, I mean, I, I looked at um, at this beforehand because I had a recollection of certain international rugby sides not taking the knee, and and, and indeed they didn't in twenty twenty one. Uh, I also looked at the uh, would, rugby would be my one of my favourite sports. I also looked at the racing industry, and nobody was taking knees there. It seems to be a, a sort of an exclusive um, uh, gesture um, by uh, um, the England football side or or English Premier League players. I don't know whether they're still doing it, but all I can say is that now that people know the ins and outs of, of Black Lives Matter. And incidentally, Dan, can I say before all my trolls wake up and get out of their kennels and start <laughs> shouting and yes. calling me a fascist, my two grandsons, Reuben and Noah, are of mixed race, or or young boys of colour or they're whatever you're allowed to call them now, okay? So don't out there start wagging your fingers at me because, you know, I, not, it. I just believe nope, I, I believe I believe that the, the whole um, um, issue that we've we've lived through of um, identity politics and uh, futile gestures. I mean, if you go back now and look at Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer in that photograph. Oh. You can't help but just go, oh, for God's sake, what are yeah. you? <laughs> I rest yeah. my
0: That man cannot be our Prime Minister. Perfect point to rest your case. Charlie Lawson, tonight's outsider. Great to chat. Thank you, Charlie. But it's time now for uncancelled. And this is where the world's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. After watching Western nations turn into authoritarian hellscapes during COVID, I've been absolutely disgusted by the idea of the World Health Organization, which mishandled the pandemic from day one, forcing us into a global health treaty that completely removes our autonomy. Luckily, I'm not the only one leading the fight back. After taking an unconventional route into journalism, Avi Yemeni isn't one to conform to the narrative pushed by the elite. So, born in Melbourne, Australia, Avi became homeless at the age of just 13. He then moved to Israel and gained citizenship there before becoming a sharpshooter with the Israeli Defence Force. Upon moving back to Australia, he eventually began working as a political activist and commentator, earning the role of chief correspondent in Australia for Rebel News, an online news platform that has gained a massive global following. And last month, he went viral after travelling to Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum, where he interrogated global leaders, including a special envoy on COVID for the World Health Organisation, David Nabarro. Look.
3: Rebel News, why do you think people don't trust? It's been hard to maintain trust through COVID. Because COVID's affected poor people everywhere really badly. So why do so many people blame your organisation, the WHO? people like to find somebody to blame.
1: I am not giving the WHO official position, gosh, you're an aggressive interviewer. By the way, the pandemic's not finished. It's still going on.
3: So those words will scare people because they're thinking we're just getting back to life and you're telling us from the WHO, it's not over.
0: And Avi Yemeni joins me live from Melbourne, Australia now. So Avi, you had a very interesting time in Davos. Uh, why did you feel it was important to scrutinize these elites who are running organizations like the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization?
3: Well, I guess uh firstly, thanks for having me. Um right. it wasn't my idea. Ezra, our boss at Rebel, knew it was the news, it was his his plan, and I think his gut instinct was Spot on, basically, we got there and you could see that the most powerful people in the world had their own little safe space there in Davos, Switzerland, where they were so shocked when any sort of reporter asked them a real question, just like Nabarro there.
0: Yeah, and you were also approaching, for example, senior executives at media organizations like the New York Times as well, right? And they didn't want to speak to you.
3: Well, in fact, I think it was more their handlers that realised that they probably shouldn't speak to me. That uh, They seemed to be shocked that somebody was asking a question and they tried to engage. But I also spoke to, uh, you know, powerful people, part of the UN. I think your view is like there's a bunch of different ones. I spoke to the New York Times uh, chief editor who was there as, a, as as a guest, not really asking the questions that they're supposed to be doing. I think your viewers can take a look at all of those at WEFReports.com, not just from me. There was a whole team of six of us from Rebel News that came and it was it was unbelievable. I I dare suggest that next time there may be different protocols in Davos because uh, we, ha- we did infiltrate their little safe space, like I said.
0: Well, indeed. And that's what's so fascinating about this, because it is a safe space, isn't it, where... These shadowy organisations uh, that contain lots of global elites, they don't expect to be asked a tough question. As you say, the, the New York Times, they're not there to do journalism and actually work out what's this treaty about, what have these organisations done wrong. They're there as part of the group. It, it's, it's quite astonishing.
3: It's it's really astonishing. And when you go there, you see that they're all wearing um, name tags, and it's like a class system where it's color-coded. That's what made my job as a journalist really easy. And I'm surprised no other journalists did it because they color-code. So it tells you straight away by the color how important this person is. Then they have their name and what company or organization they're a part of or what country they're a minister of or whatever it is. And so you basically, they give you all the information. it's 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 essentially the only part in their entire thing that what they practice is what they preach. as in they do want to live in a class system, they do it well, and it really helped us to to identify who they are and then and then pose those really simple questions. That, you know people call them tough questions, they're not tough questions, they're what the everyday ordinary Aussie or Brit would be asking him. Nabarro. You know, I kind of, at the end of it, felt bad for Nabarro. What you don't see on camera at the end of that eight-minute interaction is that he was so shocked. He turned to, once the camera went off, he turned to my cameraman um, and and tried to guilt trip him. But I, I feel like watching it, it came from a, a sincere place he was so thrown off that somebody what he called ambushed him and everybody can watch the full 8 minutes it's you know, i wouldn't call that an ambush i would call that journalism like i said WEFReports.com, the whole thing's up there and he 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 genuinely was was, was shaking and 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 said to my cameraman i hope i hope you feel good about your ambush journalism and, I, and I'm just looking at it, and I, and I did, I promised him that I would give him a chance for a proper sit-down sit interview because he was saying that was the problem, that I ambushed him on the street in his safe space. I did give him, I gave him more than a day. I said I would give him a day. I gave him almost a week. In fact, we traveled all the way to Geneva to the World Health Organization's assembly where they were, you know, trying to get this uh, treaty that you were mentioned signed by all the nations. Um, but I never I never heard. This is the point. Abby, and that's why I think
0: what you did is so important, because, of course, they won't sit down with Rebel News. But by the way, none of these jokers will come on my show either or a Mark Stein show here on GB News that done. They're only going to go to media organizations uh, where they know they're going to get an easy ride because. Many of these media organisations buy into the globalist agenda. And I think one thing that's really disturbing, Avi, is that these organisations, they are so focused on domestic politics, aren't they? I mean, look at what's going on in in the UK, for example. At the moment, we've had a leadership challenge. It's all about personality. You've just had a big election and a regime change in Australia too. So they're so focused on their domestic governments, and domestic politics. Very often, these... News organisations are completely missing the fact that the World Health Organisation, the United Nations, uh, the Wo- uh, the World Economic Forum have increasing control
3: over our lives. Absolutely, and it, it, it's even worse than that. The ones, the journalists and the organisations that actually make their way to places like Davos, are there. Like we said, like the New York Times editor that I confronted, they're there on invite, and they, they want that little class, you know, the white one, which means that they're really important. They want that and they want to be invited back next year with the same one. So they're never going to ask a question that could rock the boat. And you see also just walking around Davos, they're advertising to these people, to these organizations. They're selling their product and that's what they have. It's a product. They are owned by the corporations, by the the governments, by those elites. They're, They're part of that little elite group. And that's why, you know, in the t- in the days of the internet, in-, in in this time, it's so crucial that citizen journalists and uh, and alternative media like uh, Rebel News is so important. I believe. No, indeed, I think it's so important. Uh, I I really liked what you did out there, and I did watch
0: the the full eight minute confrontation with David Navarro from the World Health Organization. I thought you were completely respectful. You're asking very good questions. And as you say, it's well worth a watch. So thank you so much uh, for being with us uh, tonight. That's the chief correspondent for Rebel News Australia, Avi Yemeni. Dan Button here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more news-making interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Button Tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.